My name is Tom Palmer, and it's my pleasure and indeed my honor to welcome you to the first Cato University program of 2017, Cato University's College of Economics. KDU is part of my portfolio at the Cato Institute, where I'm a senior fellow, and I'm also executive vice president for international programs at the Atlas Network, which is a global network of think tanks like the Cato Institute operating around the world. I used to be 100% at Cato. I've shifted a lot of programs that we grew up at Cato over to Atlas. Now I'm 90% at Atlas and 60% at Cato. <laughs> so. It's delightful to see uh, so many familiar faces. Uh, there are a few there in the audience. I've gotten old enough, I learned not to say old friends. Uh, but also so many unfamiliar faces that I'm hoping will become friends over the course of this program and beyond. Now, as part of welcoming you to the seminar, I thought it appropriate to tell you something about the Cato Institute for some of you who may be newbies. This year, Cato celebrated our 40th anniversary of promoting liberty. The mission of the Cato Institute is quite clear and straightforward. Quote, to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free market, and peace. Our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now, those principles used to be called liberal, and indeed, in much of the world, that's still the term that is used, is liberal or liberalism. As the economist Joseph Schumpeter noted about the United States, as a supreme, if unintended, complement, the enemies of private enterprise have thought it wise to appropriate its label for themselves. Uh, so I hope that if I sometimes lapse in the course of this weekend and use the term liberal or liberalism to describe my ideas and the program of the Cato Institute, please forgive me. I am not referring to uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, political philosophy, but what used to be called liberalism, and in the United States, because of this confusion, is now normally called libertarian. The Cato Institute as an organization is organized as a public policy research institute under the rules of section 501c3 of the United States Federal Tax Code, one of the most complex creations of the human race. Uh, what that means for some of the younger folks here is that anyone who invests in our work is able to take that investment off of their taxable income. So if you're taxed at a 30% rate, you give $100 to the Cato Institute, you take $100 off of your taxable income, saving $30, it still costs you $70. I mention this because I have met many people out there who think that you can get rich by donating to a think tank. Uh, but it isn't true. Now, on the other hand, anyone who wants to try is welcome to talk to me afterwards. Now, something about our financial support, and this is very important to us, it's 100% voluntary. We receive no governmental funds whatsoever, neither from the United States government nor from the Kremlin or any other <laughs> government around the world. And we're very careful to keep that firewall uh, intact. And that also applies to the employees of the Cato Institute. Uh, cannot take a, a check for a speaking gig or something from a foreign government. And that is because we want to maintain our independence. That's important to us. And also, we don't believe in taking stolen money <laughs> for other people. The great bulk of our support, 80% of our budget, comes from individual donors. That's human beings like you and me, or at least like you, who write checks uh, to support these activities. So they come out of their uh, hard-earned money. We get a smaller percentage from foundations. Uh, last year, 15%, usually right around 14 15%. 1% uh, from corporations and business enterprises. Nonetheless, the New York Times refers to the corporate-backed Cato Institute in their articles. <laughs> My colleague David Bowes likes to send them a letter whenever they do that, saying, I'm looking forward to, letter, to your articles on the corporate-backed and then long list of organizations that receive more than 50% of their funding from corporate groups. Um, but they usually send that letter saying, we didn't know that. Uh, and 4% from the sale of books, conference registrations, and, and that sort of uh, program income. Cato relies on the voluntary support of 
approximately 15,000 current loyal sponsors, the vast majority of them in the United States, but not all, uh, who make annual donations uh, as expressions of their personal commitment to liberty, limited government, freedom of trade, and peace. Now, most of what Cato does is focused on particular issues of public policy. That's when you see Cato's spokespeople on television or hear them on the radio, or if you're imaginative, you see them on the radio. Uh, talking about taxes and spending and regulations and foreign policy and military policy and criminal justice and the war on drugs and civil asset forfeiture and freedom of speech and property rights protection and health care policy and on and on and on. Now, unlike most of the groups in Washington, D.C., we do not claim not to have an agenda. I want to make that very clear. Uh, we do have an agenda. Years ago, I was on a panel uh, before the Fulbright Scholars who were in Washington, D.C., with a scholar from another organization, a very distinguished think tank that produces honorable work. And she started out by saying, unlike the Cato Institute, <laughs> we don't have an agenda. We produce objective social science research. What was funny was she may have been the only person in the room who was fooled by it. Everyone has an agenda. It's clear. And so our view is, let's put it out on the table and discuss it. This is what we believe in. We don't smuggle it in the back door. We put it on the table. These are our principles. One way to find out what someone's agenda is, is what questions do they ask? What do they think is important? And I'll give you a fairly simple and pretty obvious one. My colleagues in Washington and I uh, frequently committed terrible faux pas. We asked the following rude question, which leads to rolled eyes and coughing sounds. When someone is discussing some power to be exercised by the state, we say, can you show me where in the Constitution of the United States of America the proposed power is authorized? This is the equivalent of belching at a dinner party. <laughs> Very rude thing. And everyone stops, just awful. Uh, and of course, many of you may have your Cato pocket constitutions. I usually travel with two, one for myself and one for the poor person on, next to me on the plane. Uh, and one of the things I like is when people say, well, it's a constitutionally authorized. I say, well, show me. It's right here, the whole thing. Can you show me where in the Constitution this is authorized? That tells you about our agenda. A, we don't get invited to a lot of cocktail parties. <laughs> but B, very importantly, we believe in the rule of law. We believe in constitutionally limited government. We believe in the presumption of liberty rather than the presumption of power. We do not presume people have power over others. We presume people should have the liberty to manage their own lives unless there's a sufficient reason that can be shown why that liberty should be restrained. But the burden of proof is on the one who would restrain, not on the one who would exercise the liberty, just as in the case of the burden of proof in a criminal case. The prosecutor must prove you are guilty. You are not required to prove that you are innocent. And the same goes for the presumption of liberty and the presumption of power. Now, as our mission statement says, we advance the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. We believe stating them up front helps us to be more attentive, not less, to the virtues of intellectual excellence. Accuracy, objectivity, and fairness. These are very important principles uh, for a research organization or a public advocacy organization. We don't smuggle our principles in. We acknowledge and defend them up front. And then we make sure that our research is not affected by them, that our outcomes are not the ones we were hoping to find. Facts are facts. The standards for studies from the Cato Institute require that the numbers, facts, and the citations be checked and rechecked, that the work is in the public interest and not an expression of any special or partial interest and that the arguments and evidence for competing proposals are met on their strongest and not their weakest terms. 
It's so common in intellectual discourse to have someone respond by picking your weakest arguments and knocking them down. We try to take a higher road. Setting up straw men and knocking them down is not a worthy or even very successful way to advance the principles of liberty. And so when we publish a study, we invite the smartest and toughest critics we can find to come and take their best shots at it. Because if it cannot withstand that, we should not publish it. It's a very simple uh, uh, standard. As uh, our officers remind our uh, junior researchers when they come in, if you ever find yourself questioning the motives of someone else, you lost the argument. You lost the argument. Doesn't matter what their motives are, and we assume their motives to be the highest. We happen to know that is not true, but for purposes of public discussion, we assume that everyone is motivated by the public interest and the highest principles. But again, we're not just about public policy anal analysis. Everything we do at Cato touches our basic principles, and we defend them directly. Cato University is one of the ways that we do that. It's an opportunity for us to go back to that uh, fundamental touchstone of our principles and be refreshed. Cato started running these seminars immediately after it was founded in 1977. In the summer of 1978, uh, held the first Cato Institute summer seminars in political economy. And I actually attended that one. I was one of the first interns of the Cato Institute. There are three of us. We were known as the Cato clones. Uh, and uh, then I went on and did a lot of other things for many, many years. So I kept in touch with Cato and write for them and, and helped them organize things in Soviet Union, first Cato conferences in the Soviet Union in 1990, 1991, uh, when I lived in Austria. But uh, I didn't work there. I came back uh, many years later. And then we relaunched Cato University in 1997. And this year, we've shifted. They've been week-long programs for a long time, but that's a major commitment. A lot of people can't get away for a whole week if you have children or a business or cats. Uh, and three days, cats can take care of themselves generally, but week's too long. Uh, so we shifted to this long weekend format, and we're going to sh shift them around the country. So here we are at the College of Economics. In October, we'll hold the College of History and Philosophy in Philadelphia, which is going to be a great uh, opportunity, by the way. Rob McDonald, who's a great American historian, is going to give a tour of the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall and so on. And then next April, the College of Law and Government in New Orleans, or New Orleans. <laughs> so this is the College of Economics. And I wanted to start the substantive discussion with the defense of economics. You probably have heard the dismissive quip uh, about economists. Someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Ha ha. It's actually, <coughs> take, pardon me, my faux effete accent is taxing on me. It's taken from a comment in a play by Oscar Wilde in which Lord Darlington also famous for the statement, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars, is asked the question, what is a cynic? And he replies, a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. This has been wrenched out of context and applied to economists to dismiss economics, which does talk about values and prices, but as if knowing about market prices were of no value at all, something insignificant and, and terribly a plebeian. In fact, price is a very important concept, and it helps us to understand the world. All of us interact with prices on a regular basis, and understanding what it is that they're doing is quite helpful. Economists may not, in fact, normally will not, know the price of everything, but they have an understanding of what role prices play and what happens when you screw with them. And that is a very good thing to know. The other slight you may have heard is when economics was referred to as the dismal science. And I've had this thrown at me at 
philosophy and political science conferences. Oh, yes. A response from the followers of the dismal science. <laughs> that insult has a most interesting history, one that's usually unknown to those who repeat it. They think it's just talking about economics as something dreary and awful because it's so tawdry. It's about buying and selling and all those awful things. Whereas we're involved in the fuller sense of the human spirit. Thomas Carlyle, who was the originator of the term, contrasted the dismal science with what he called a gay science, gay in the sense of being jolly and delightful, <laughs> uh, not, a, not its contemporary, more common meaning. Uh, and people say, oh, that's the significance of it. Or sometimes people assume it has to do with Thomas Malthus and his dreary predictions about the future of humanity, namely that populations grow geometrically and food supply arithmetically, so populations will outstrip the food supply and you'll always push back into famine, want, and misery. Malthus, I should point out, by the way, was an ardent enemy of free trade, and his views were very strongly criticized by the free market economists of his time. So where did this term come from? Well, it was Thomas Carlyle who originated it in an exceptionally repulsive essay in 1849, Occasional Discourse on the Negro Question, republished in 1853 with an even more repulsive title. Negro was replaced by a, an uglier epithet. And he attacked the classical economists because they supported the elimination of slavery and the emancipation of the slaves. He wrote, and I will quote, in this very precious, annoying style of Carlyle, truly my philanthropic friends, Exeter Hall philanthropy, and Exeter Hall was where the anti-slavery society met. So it was, when you said Exeter Hall, you meant those people agitating to eliminate chattel slavery. Truly, Exeter Hall philanthropy is wonderful. And the social science, not a gay science, but a rueful, which finds the secret of this universe in supply and demand and reduces the duty of human governors to that of letting men alone, is also wonderful. Not a gay science, I should say, like some we have heard of. No, a dreary, desolate, and indeed quite abject and distressing one. What we might call, by way of eminence, the dismal science. These two, Exeter Hall philanthropy, the anti-slavery sentiment, and the dismal science, led by any sacred cause of black emancipation or the like, to fall in love and make a wedding of it will give birth to progenies and prodigies, dark extensive moon calves, unnameable abortions, wide coiled monstrosities, such as the world has not seen hitherto. Fortunately, people do not like, write like this anymore. He went on then to attack the idea of free labor markets and of working for wages based on a free contractual agreement and demanded a return to slavery. Let me read it. The West Indies, it appears, are short of labor, as indeed is very conceivable in those circumstances, where a black man, by working half an hour a day, such is the calculation, can supply himself by aid of sun and soil with as much pumpkin as will suffice. This is very unpleasant to read, but I will get through it to give you the ugliness of this man and his attack on, on economics. He is likely to be a little stiff to raise into hard work. Supply and demand, which science says should be brought to bear on him, have an uphill task of it with such a man. Strong sun supplies itself gratis. Rich soil in those unpeopled or half-peopled regions almost gratis. These are his supply. And half an hour a day directed upon these will produce pumpkin, which is his demand. The fortunate black man. Very swiftly does he settle his account with supply and demand. Not so swiftly the less fortunate white man of these tropical localities. He himself cannot work. And his black neighbor, rich in pumpkin, is in no haste to help him sunk to the ears and pumpkin, imbibing saccharine juices, and much at ease in the creation, he can listen to the less fortunate white man's demand and take his own good time in supplying it. Higher wages, massa. Higher, for your cane crop cannot wait. Still higher, 
till no conceivable opulence of cane crop will cover such wages. In Demerara, as I read in the blue book of last year, the cane crop far and wide stands rotting. The fortunate black gentlemen, strong in their pumpkins, having all stuck, struck till the demand rise a little. Sweet, blighted lilies now getting up their heads again. This is an exceptionally ugly, uh, racist assault on people of color and a demand that they be re-enslaved for the poor white man who cannot work in the tropics. So remember that any time you hear someone denigrate the dismal science, exactly where that came from and what it was about. It was an assault on the economists for favoring the elimination of slavery and instead free labor. Now economics as a term comes to us from Greek. Its constituents are oikos, which means a household, not a house as we understand it, but a productive unit, a family enterprise of some sort. We might say today uh, an estate or a plantation or something like that. And nomos, which refers to the rules or principles that govern or are used to manage an oikos. So it referred to the art of household management, how to manage your estate, your household, or your plantation. Something like what used to be called home economics in school. What we call economics today used to be called political economy because it referred to the economics of a polity, which is a wide group of different households in interaction with each other, from which we get the term politics and so on, so a wider group. Political economy was the origin of what we today call economics, wider systems of coordination of production, exchange, and consumption. The term political was dropped roughly latter part of the 19th century, although it's seen something of a revival in recent years. Now, economics is not at its heart about mastering some set of technical skills or solving math problems, as some professors might like to suppose. It's about understanding social order. Aristotle, in his metaphysics, claimed it is through wonder that men now begin and originally began to philosophize, that is to say, to think systematically and to ask about causes. It's when you wonder about things. Why does the moon not fall on us? Why do things fall down and not up? That we begin to philosophize. Economics starts in wondering about things that we take for granted. So when I go to the grocery store, I sometimes find myself wondering, how did all that stuff get there? What's it doing here? Right? All these people, something happened that there's in this one place all the stuff I want. How did that happen? Was it just randomness? Some kind of fractal pattern, grocery stores appearing uh, on the landscape? Uh, was it uh, because a mastermind unseen to us has planned this and issued orders? And late at night, little elf-like creatures scurry about and move mangoes and grape-sized tomatoes to put them just where I will find them later on. So how did all that stuff happen? The French political economist, my personal hero, Frederic Bastiat, put it very neatly, said, how is Paris fed? How is Paris fed? Where does all that food come from? And how does it go from where it was to where it ends up? That's what economics is about. Now that's the everyday experience of wonder, but there's a wider version that requires multiple experiences where we can compare different places, cities, towns, countries, and regions. And we might notice in some places, some people consume more than in others. Why is that? You travel around the world and you see shocking poverty and amazing opulence and wealth. Why is Singapore so rich? You can travel a pretty short distance and find pretty remarkable poverty. Why is that? What accounts for those differences? I travel around a lot, 
And I, my understanding of poverty was greatly changed when you visit places where people die because they can't afford 10 cents a day for clean water. So, or my mother-in-law, whom I have to encourage to take the air-conditioned van to go to the big city rather than in the back of a truck because it costs 20 cents more. And I have to say, it's OK. We can afford that. But for her, that's a lot of money as she grew up. That was a sacrifice. So she said, no, 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 no. Say, we have to save our money So for 20 cents. So that's a difference between uh, our uh, social orders. Now, we can ask, why are those places poor and other places are wealthy? And one who focused on that, of course, was the Scottish moral philosopher Adam Smith. We can look at his book. It's quite revealing. It was not called, as it is usually re referred to, The Wealth of Nations. The title is very revealing. It's an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. And each term is important to understanding what he was going on about. Very few people have focused on the way he changed how most people thought about this question. Because he didn't just talk about the causes, he talked about the nature of the wealth of nations. And that was more fundamental. Most prior writers had identified the wealth of a nation, its nature, with the opulence and power of the ruling elite, the king and the court, the barons and the nobility. In contrast, Smith began his work by identifying the nature of a nation's wealth, not with its military power, nor with all the gold and silver in the king's treasury, but with the annual produce of the combined labor power of the nation divided by the number of consumers, roughly what we now call per capita gross domestic product. is a descendant of this idea. As he wrote, According, therefore, as this produce, or what is purchased with it, bears a greater or smaller proportion to the number of those who are to consume it, the nation will be better or worse supplied with all the necessaries and conveniences for which it has occasion. That was a very important point, that the concept of mercantilism, that you wanted to have an outflow of goods and an inflow of specie or gold. Why? because the king will be able to get the gold and use it to hire mercenary soldiers to conquer the Netherlands. We still have this theory every time you open up the newspaper and it says, oh my god, the trade deficit has gotten bigger. This is terrible. Balance of trade is awful. Fortunately, it is no longer a major goal of most states to conquer the Netherlands, <laughs> uh, for which was the point of the earlier doctrine, to acquire all of that inflow of specie, of gold and silver. So the wealth of the nation should be measured not by the opulence or power of the rulers, not by the gold stashed in the treasury, but the, by the ability of the people there to consume wealth of any randomly chosen member of the population. Because everyone counted the same as anyone else. That's the wealth of a nation. Now what about its causes? Now note, it's wealth that has causes. It's more common today for people to ask, what are the causes of poverty? But I think that's not the right question. I was asked some years ago to contribute a chapter to a book published by Cambridge University Press on poverty. It seemed I was the only one who rejected the premise of the first question, what causes poverty? I said it's the wrong question. Poverty has no cause. Wealth has causes. We need to ask, what caused wealth? And I produce graphs showing the change per capita income for the last several thousand years, $3 a day, until about between 1800 and 1820. And then you get a real hockey stick. It goes up. I said, what requires explanation? Thousands of years of nothing or 200 years of astonishing change? Which one do you think requires the explanation? And I was, of course, treated as a pariah <laughs> uh, by the other writers. Poverty is what you get when you fail to produce wealth. It's not the case that wealth is what you get when you fail to produce poverty. 
we worked so hard to produce a lot of poverty, we failed and everyone was rich. <laughs> it's just not how the world works. The primary causes or determinants of wealth are the institutions that create incentives for voluntary cooperation to produce wealth. What makes a country wealthy isn't the gold in the ground or the oil. We've been through all this so many times. It's institutions. Hong Kong is one of the richest places in the world. It's a rock covered by Chinese people. Right? There's not much else there. The Netherlands, they didn't have gold or silver or jewels. They don't even have land. They have to make land from the sea. That's why it's called the Netherlands. It's below sea level. People figured out it's the institutions. And this was actually one of the great origins of thinking systematically about economics was the question, why are the Dutch rich? What makes the Dutch wealthy? Because you could test all these other theories, gold mines and silver mines and so on. They didn't have any of those things. Wealth has causes. <coughs> Poverty, as measured against the background of wealth, is a failure to create or hold on to wealth. And the causes of such failure are those institutions or practices that create disincentives for voluntary cooperation to produce wealth and or incentives for predatory transfers that impoverish some for the benefit of others, usually to the net loss of all, by the way. As has been recently observed, when you look around the world, we find that in a very important sense, it's the places that are poor and not the people. Because when those people who live there leave and go to rich places, they don't stay poor. They produce a lot of wealth. And they become prosperous. They leave the poverty behind. It's not the people in some sense. They're the ones who suffered. But it's not the people who are poor. It's the place. And specifically, the institutions, rather than the people that are responsible. You could say the same about a lot of other things, such as honesty and corruption. When I was in Pakistan some years ago, I gave a series of talks on uh, free trade. Two weeks later, the government legalized trade with India again, and I took full credit uh, for that. But we had some very robust debates on whether Pakistan should trade with India. And some, I remember at one event in Karachi, a man denounced me. He said, we will not trade with the Indians so long as one pebble of Jammu and Kashmir is under Indian jurisdiction. We will not buy one onion from them. And I said, OK, I understand. I understand what you're saying. But if you succeed, your children's 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 children will be at war. And if you want that, that's the right attitude to take. But if you would hope there might be peace, you should be open to the idea of trade with your neighbors. Unfortunately, that view uh, was the dominant one among most people in the country. But an issue came up. Well, we are poor because we are corrupt and dishonest. And an imam there, very strong, classical, liberal, uh, libertarian-minded uh, and respected imam, he said, well, let me ask you this. When a Pakistani who pays bribes regularly in Pakistan flies to England, he walks across a line, he stops paying bribes. What is different, the man or the institutions? Our institutions make us corrupt and dishonest. And in England, that same man will not pay a bribe, but he will pay it regularly here in Pakistan. And that was a very powerful example institutions matter. So what are the institutions that make places and therefore people prosperous and peaceful and free? Those, again, that create incentives to cooperate, to create added value rather than, than to fight over the spoils. It's a broad answer, but it's important to stress that only rarely do we ever get to choose outcomes. Most people think po politicians choose the outcome. This is not true. Policy discussions are not about outcomes. You don't get to choose the outcomes you want. If that were the case, 
We'd all be beautiful and rich and live forever and so on. What we get to choose, not only in our personal lives, but through politics or policy, is processes. And we hope the processes we choose will generate the outcomes that we want. If you want to become stronger, eat well and exercise. You can't just say, well, I just choose to be stronger. I had a vote with myself, and we agreed we will be stronger. <laughs> Not how the world works. You have to choose a process which you hope will result in becoming stronger. If you want to live longer, go to a good doctor, eat well, don't jump off of cliffs, and so on. That's true in the social order as well. We choose the processes. But in this case, we call them rules, rules that govern our behavior that we expect will lead to the outcomes we want. We need the ones that create incentives for people to behave in cooperative ways. And this is a very important point. Critics of the free market always say, bloodthirsty competition. It's competitive. Therefore, it's about animosity and being enemies. Not at all. It's about cooperation. And when people compete in the market, they are competing in order to cooperate. Apple and Dell compete in making computers. They're competing with each other in order to cooperate with me by offering me the better deal. Our interventionist friends typically think they can just choose the outcomes. They can impose processes, but they generally don't produce the outcomes they want. If you want to raise the wages of labor, you can help to change the rules to encourage people to improve or increase their skill sets, or to save and increase the ratio of late capital to labor, or to innovate and come up with new labor-saving devices that make labor more productive. Or you can pass a minimum wage law. And the former will work, and the latter will put unskilled people out of work. So as it was put out, uh, uh, mentioned years ago, it's better to be employed at $7 an hour than unemployed at 12. But that's what oh, minimum wage laws do. So what creates value? Well, work and, or labor. And that's why the classical economists focused on labor as creating value. But trade also creates value. When two people trade voluntarily, the value of what they now own is greater than it was before. That's the reason that they engage in the trade. Voluntary trade creates value. But trade requires security of rights. It matters that your claims are protected from predators. And in that sense, good government is a part of the productive order, a topic I'll talk about a little bit more tomorrow. One of the most important factors of production is getting the right set of rules much more important than physical capital by far. Uh, William Niskanen, the late former chairman of the Cato Institute, and a very fine economist, called it the soft infrastructure of the free society that was much more valuable than the hard infrastructure. Again, Adam Smith understood this. In 1750, he wrote, or stated, rather it was written down by one of his stu students, uh, Dougal Stewart, Little else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. Now notice, by the way, the modesty of this. Not perfect justice. You're not going to get it. A tolerable administration of justice. All governments which thwart this natural course, which force things into another channel, or which endeavor to arrest the progress of society at a particular point are unnatural, and to support themselves are obliged to be oppressive and tyrannical. So little else is requisite. But what is requisite is where the focus of our attention should be. Limited government, the rule of law, security of rights, freedom to create, to trade, to innovate, and to enjoy the fruits of one's labors in peace. In a word, liberty. Now, the Cato Institute is a leading participant in a major annual study of all the countries in the world for which there are publicly available data, are looking at those institutions as they relate to economic freedom. It's the Economic Freedom of the World Report. And I invite anyone to check out the report. It's also available on Cato's website. You can download it or at freetheworld.com. Uh, it's also uh, an open access resource. All the data are available. If you are one of those people who love statistics, uh, 
Uh, you can run regressions on it. You can combine it with other, other data sets and come up with possibly interesting uh, results. The results are startling. Economic freedom, based on limited government and freedom to trade, rule of law and security of rights, is the key to prosperity. It's strongly correlated with just about every imaginable positive good that you could list. Now, correlation and causation are not the same, so maybe it's the case very wealthy countries say, hey, why don't we have economic freedom now? Let's do that. But you can test for that. That is not what happens. Poor countries adopt sound policies of economic freedom and become prosperous. They go from being poor places to being prosperous places, or rather places where people can prosper. I should add that at the Atlas Network, we commissioned a major project recently to look at the relationship between changes in the scores in the Economic Freedom of the World Report and the World Bank's Doing Business Report, and then look at how those are influenced, or how those are related to measures of poverty. And the results are just coming in. Uh, it's rather exciting research, and we hope to uh, publish the full studies in September. Now, I mentioned peace and liberty. Those are mutually reinforcing in a very important way. The classical liberals of the 18th and 19th centuries were strong free traders because they believed in peace, not just because they wanted the price of corn chips to fall by 8%, but because they wanted a peaceful world. Political scientists and statisticians have since shown that their conclusions were right. Eric Gardsky of University of California, San Diego, among others, has shown, and there's a book I put out where I coerced him into um, writing a chapter for it, Peace, Love, and Liberty, so we have some copies here, uh, that trade reduces the incentives for violence and conflict and has dramatically contributed to the reductions in violence. Peace and freedom are mutually reinforcing. Karl Marx was not a friend of the free market economy, it's a big surprise to most of you. Uh, but he called it the anarchy of production. It was anarchistic. And it would be better to have one that was consciously organized, an expression of human will, and therefore authentic freedom. Because we would plan our own future. Whereas under the market system, it was anarchy. The order of a market economy is not like the order of a military drill or marching band. But that is how Marx and Engels understood order. That's what an ordered arrangement is like. In fact, though, the order of a market economy is much more orderly. There's more coordination in such an activity. And when you try to impose order on it, you get chaos, not more order. It was one of the great insights of the Scottish Enlightenment, David Hume and Adam Smith, but it was articulated many, many years earlier by a Chinese thinker, Lao Tzu, in the Tao Te Ching. So he said, the more prohibitions there are, the poorer the people will be. The more edicts are promulgated, the more thieves and bandits there will be. Therefore, a sage has said, so long as I do nothing, here the term in Chinese is wu wei, which is my Chinese friends insist, they say it's badly translated as do nothing. It means to be actively inactive, which is puzzling to us. I'll explain why, what it, with the context here. So long as I do nothing, the people will of themselves be transformed. So long as I love quietude, the people will of themselves go straight. So long as I act only by inactivity, the people will of themselves become prosperous. As they explain, active inactivity, Wu Wei means, you help to set the rules and step back and let the order emerge. Lao Tzu put it also very neatly. He said, governing a great country is like frying a small fish, which is initially puzzling to me until I asked someone who fries fish, what does it mean? He said, if you poke at it with a fork, it's no good. You should let, let it cook. But the chef who's always poking at it will ruin it. And rulers who want to poke at the society and intervene will disrupt the order. Or as Lu Juning, one of the great uh, Chinese philosophers of today, puts it, Wu Wei is best translated into English as rule of law and laissez-faire. 
but that is what the concept means. Now, an order of individual rights that are well-defined and legally secure makes possible more prosperity and more harmony than intentional attempts to impose order on an entire society. Well-defined rights help us to avoid conflict, and they create the basis for peaceful exchange and cooperation. But let me conclude with a thought about freedom. It's not just about increasing our material or measurable prosperity or our ability to consume goods. Free societies have other benefits as well that we should not forget. They allow us to fashion our own identities independently of the power of rulers who so often insist on imposing what they think should be the proper identities on us. The Nobel Prize winning economist James Buchanan, who's famous for his very technical work in public choice, I'll talk about that tomorrow, noted that there was something else about the economics about the deep value of liberty. He wrote, man wants liberty to become the man he wants to become. He might today apologize for the gendered language, but it means human beings. Man wants liberty to become the man he wants to become. He does so precisely because he does not know what man he will want to become in time. Let us remove once and for all the instrumental defense of liberty the only one that can possibly be derived from orthodox economic analysis. Man does not want liberty in order to maximize his utility or that of the society of which he is a part. He wants liberty to become the man he wants to become. And I think that's a very important element of freedom as well. Now, I've talked about rules, and I'll talk more tomorrow about the importance of good rules for liberty and peace, but let me focus on rules for the College of Economics here. And here are a couple of important ones I want to run through that will help our civil society to work better and everyone to have a better time. The first and most important thing, many of you have changed time zones, came from Michigan or, or Maine or other places. I'm going to ask you to change time zones one more time, to set all of your watches to Swiss time, because we will operate on Swiss time here. Uh, and if you've ever been in Switzerland, the Swiss consider the Germans lazy and indolent <laughs> and unpunctual. And I have expressed to friends, when you go to Germany and it says the train leaves at 3.33, it will leave at 3.33 and some seconds. In Switzerland, it will leave at 3.33. So we will begin precisely on time which means, as you see here uh, for tomorrow, uh, 9 a.m., Professor Jeffrey Myron will be standing here, and exactly 9 o'clock, his mouth will open and sound <laughs> will come out. And it will end at 10.15. We have stationed snipers around the room. At 10.15, it will stop. And that means you have the full time for the break. And so everyone will know when to be there, when it's over. We're not going to run over into break time. Uh, but I'd like to do that. I think everyone will have a better time as a consequence. So try to get here just a few minutes early, like 8.56, to find your seat so that you'll be able to start on time at 9 o'clock. Second thing, uh, it's very helpful to wear your name tags. Uh, all of you will be chipped by the end of the seminar, a little <laughs> microchip in the back. It's easier to wave the wand at you to identify you. But in the meantime, it's so nice, and the names are big enough that even I can see them. And so we can get to know each other better. It's, it's a delightful thing. Now, here's what I recommend. When you go back to your room, this is what I do. I take it off, and I put it on the floor in front of the door, because I know I will forget where I put it. I, just, I know that. I'm going to put it there along with the key to the room, which I'll also forget if I put someplace <laughs> else. So when I leave, I say, oh, I put my name tag and my key right there. And I take them on the way out. So I encourage you to do that. Now, some of us are here on scholarships. And those scholarships are made available by our Cato sponsors, who made extra uh, specified donations uh, to make it possible for some of the students uh, to be here. And so there are some special sessions uh, organized. There's going to be one right after this, which will be 
in the Pacific Room at 9.30, so it'll be shortly, and my colleague Katie Ranville. Katie, are you near? there she is in the red, uh, will be there to talk to you. Uh, I'm going to ask you at the end, by the way, to write letters. This is a bit like uh, an elderly aunt talking to you. Uh, to thank those donors, because those are people who worked extra hard and gave up something to make it possible for you to be here. And, and I know them personally, some of them, and they're lovely, very nice people. So we will uh, do that, how you benefited from the program, if, if you did. That, by the way, is up to you. I cannot dictate that. I mentioned being on time, and I'm going to mention it, especially for the college and high school students here. I was, at one time, young. And I remember it was very hard to wake up in the morning. Painful, terrible experience. So you all have cell phones that have alarms on them. Please set them. You can call the hotel to get a wake-up call. Please do that. And before you go to sleep, open the drapes so the sun will burn into the back of your eyeballs and wake you up so you will not be late. And, we can, and also try to get to sleep at a reasonable time after you've been up arguing whether government is necessary until 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> it's an opportunity to learn from some uh, astonishing, important scholars, uh, Lynn Kiesling, Jeff Myron, Dan Eikenson, Lisa Conyers, Vernon Smith, <laughs> and from each other to make friends with people whom you will meet here. <laughs> there will be some discussion, <laughs> pardon me, I apologize, in the lobby lounge, for those who are not students uh, out there, and then later the students can join us after their program is open. <coughs> Breakfast starts at 8 o'clock in the Oasis Court. So please get charged up with caffeine and carbohydrates, your C&C in the morning, and 8.56 here to find a seat. And now I can't speak anymore, so I'll stop. Thank you very much. <laughs> <coughs>